This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's not make a show in front of your wife and kids. What happens when the witness who places you at the scene of a crime isn't human? Because you are under arrest for your warrant for your outstanding Listen to Black Box, a new podcast series from The Guardian. Seven stories about AI and us. Coming soon. Two years ago this weekend, Russia invaded Ukraine. Russian forces raised their flag in the eastern city of Avdivka, what had been a Ukrainian stronghold and symbol of resistance since Russia's invasion nearly two years ago. Two weeks ago, the presumptive Republican presidential nominee, Donald Trump, went on a rant at a campaign rally saying he would encourage Russia to, and I quote, do whatever the hell they want. America's NATO allies if they did not meet Trump's demand to pay their fair share of NATO funding. You gotta pay. You gotta pay your bills. Trump also pointedly did not join those world leaders who had condemned the Kremlin after news broke that the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny had died in prison. President Biden blamed President Putin. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. All the while, the military aid package passed by the Senate last week, which included $60 billion for Ukraine, has stalled in the House of Representatives. So how worried should America's allies be about a second Trump presidency? What happens if the Republican Party's isolationist streak becomes the policy of the entire US? And in the meantime, how can Joe Biden protect Ukraine when Congress refuses to act? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. Susan Glasser is an author and staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes a weekly column on life in Washington. A year ago, it might have appeared unthinkable that so many Republicans would abandon Ukraine just because Trump urged them to do so. She's reading from a piece she wrote last week about the threat Donald Trump poses if he's voted back into the White House. A year from now, there is the not implausible chance that when a re-elected President Donald Trump demands that they make concessions to Putin or pull back from commitments to our treaty allies in Europe, they will follow him in that too. Consider yourself warned. So with that warning, you are both looking back a year and looking ahead a year. But I wondered if we could invite you to think back two years to uh, Russian troops' first invasion of Ukraine, the shock that caused around the world. Where we are now, two years on, just in terms of giving us a sort of sit rep, a situation report of this war, crude measure, but who's winning? There's no question that in the initial stages of the war, 
Russia was defeated in the sense that Putin made this very outrageous, audacious gamble uh, and thought he was going to mount this lightning strike on Kyiv, topple the government, take over the country, change what it was. And that failed. And it failed in a fairly spectacular way when you consider you know, the size and relative strengths of the two militaries and the expectations of the world, which were that Ukraine couldn't possibly hold out. So I would say Ukraine, you know, certainly uh, defeated Russia in the initial stage of this war. It has since settled into uh, a very devastating uh, for Ukraine and in many ways for Russia as well, war of attrition in, in the east and south of the country. And I think that's what strikes so much concern uh, in the heart of those watching this is it's it's just not clear that this could go on for for a long long time uh, at great cost of course uh, in human life and in Ukraine's ability to survive as a thriving independent country. Uh, and some have read into this week's news of of Ukraine having to withdraw from what had been a key stronghold. Ukrainian troops have withdrawn from the key eastern town of Avdivka. They're blaming weapons shortages and the risk of losing vital military units as the Russians encircle the town. It's Moscow's biggest victory in months. A sign that, if anything, the momentum is more with Russia than with Ukraine, partly because Vladimir Putin and Russia have deeper resources. They can fight this fight longer. And there is no sign at all, is there, Susan, that Vladimir Putin is in any mood to give up? Well, that's right. Two points. Uh, first of all, uh, it's absolutely true that Russia is a, a bigger, wealthier country with larger reserves of person power to call upon over the course of the, the war, that it has retooled its economy uh, and militarized it and uh, restarted the ability to manufacture arms, not to mention getting uh, ammunition in huge quantities from North Korea. Putin right now has every incentive to keep this conflict going as he watches and waits for what he believes to be uh, almost the inevitable collapse of Western support for Ukraine and will to hold out. And here in the United States, I'm in Washington, as we have this conversation we're the biggest risk factor in many ways for Ukraine in the war. Our election in the fall is not only an enormous test for our own democracy, it actually poses potentially an existential threat to Ukraine's democracy. And if Donald Trump were to win, the very realistic assessment has to be that our support for Ukraine, which has been so robust and important the last two years, would not be there anymore. And Putin would have won in that sense. Yeah. And that's exactly what we want to talk about with you in more depth. The The question became sharper in the last week with news of the death of the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Prison officials say Navalny went for a walk, but felt unwell and quickly lost consciousness. They said medics could not revive him. President Biden blamed President Putin. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. We're going to talk about how Donald Trump and Republicans reacted to that news, but you're somebody who's followed this very closely. What was just your own personal response to hearing of the death of Navalny? You know, what a tragedy, of course, right? What a tragedy, a tragedy 
for Navalny's family, his his wife, his two children, and a tragedy for Russia. Uh, I really, just the last few days in particular, been struck by the death blow to hope. You know, feeling like in many ways there was a finality to this, that it was a kind of a final extinction of the space for any kind of meaningful politics inside Putin's increasingly malign dictatorship in Russia, that he has used the cover of this full-scale invasion of Ukraine to finally accomplish the, the finishing of his project of stifling political life inside Russia as well. Yes, and the, and the implications of that for Russia and for the war. People who want to learn more about that, delve more into that, can listen back to Tuesday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus. But our focus uh, here is on the American dimension and on Donald Trump in particular. Susan, just tell us about the way he responded to Navalny's death. He didn't address it for several days, eventually posting on his Truth Social uh, platform that it just made him think about what's happening in America uh, and then co-opting it as part of his own long-running argument with the American judicial system. Here he was speaking to Fox News's Laura Ingram, who asked him how he was going to pay a fine imposed by a New York judge in that civil fraud case last week, fining him $350 million plus interest. Here he was earlier this week. It is a form of Navalny. It is a form of uh, communism or fascism. Uh, the guy's a nut job. What do you think that tells us? <laughs> well, listen, anyone who's been following Donald Trump knows that everything uh, for Donald Trump is about Donald Trump. So in that sense, of course, it's 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 not a, a surprise. And, you know, and yet it's still quite horrifying uh, that he would conflate himself with Navalny. Uh, you know, frankly, if Nelson Mandela was still around, he would conflate himself with Nelson Mandela. Donald Trump, one of his superpowers in political life is an absolute lack of shame and a willingness to be more brazen than you could possibly imagine. And it is it is brazen and, and shameful to uh, compare himself to Alexei Navalny, uh, uh, a brave, by the way, physically courageous person, uh, unlike Trump, who survived enormous uh, hardship in the Russian penal system. You know, Trump is grievance, grievance, grievance. That's what he's all about right now is running a campaign, a national campaign in which his essentially his platform is vote for me because they're, you know, attacking me. The other thing, of course, that's notable is that Donald Trump refuses to hold Vladimir Putin or his government responsible for the death of Navalny. And Trump's consistent admiration for Putin, his basic denial of Ukraine's right to exist as an independent country, uh, all of those really amplify and reflect what we hear from, from Russian state propaganda. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It's quite right, isn't it? It's not just the narcissism of being able to say that the New York court decision to fine him last week was, his words, a form of Navalny. It's not just that. It's the fact that he is amplifying, as you say, echoing those sort of Putin points. There was a time when that made 
Donald Trump the outlier. Obviously, he's an outlier now, out of step with Joe Biden, other world leaders in the way he's responded to Navalny's death. But he was even an outlier among Republicans who were, you know, the party of Ronald Reagan firmly standing against Russia. Now he's much more in step with them. I mean, the way he did not want to blame Putin for Navalny's death, his mealy-mouthedness on that, it's no longer peculiar to Trump, is it? Well, look, we're eight years into this Trump era in American politics, and one of the striking aspects of his takeover of the Republican Party, because he was an outsider, essentially, who came and took over one of the two political parties, is uh, how much he's managed to move and transform that party in his own image. Uh, It turns out that things that we thought of as foundations of the party's ideology really weren't so much, and that they the the sort of cult of personality has really uh, taken over. Also, what you've seen is many uh, Republican elected officials who didn't like Trump very much, they've left the scene. Uh, They've been forced off. There have been very high profile cases of certain Republican senators or Congress people who stood against Trump, and they've essentially been drummed out of their own party. As Trump consistently declined to really support Ukraine and recently has made uh, support for Ukraine military aid uh, something he's actively pushed Republicans in Congress against. Because we're giving away so much equipment. We don't have ammunition for ourselves right now. We don't have ammunition for ourselves. We're giving away so much. But here's the thing. I have to say it to start off. No longer matters. If I were president, this would have never happened. Uh, well, they have fallen in line, many of them, on this, as with so many other things. So it's, I think, a pretty dramatic case study of how one man has now created a, a movement in the Republican Party in his own sort of bizarre, toxic politics. Is it, though, in your view, simply falling in line with the leader? deferring to Donald Trump? Or is there an ideological dimension to this? John Stewart this week, now back on the uh, behind the desk at The Daily Show, had a go at uh, Tucker Carlson, who made this sort of propagandistic trip to Russia in which he was singing a hymn of praise to the virtues of the Moscow subway system and the plentiful supply in Moscow supermarkets. And that's when you start to realize that ideology maybe doesn't matter as much as you thought, corruption. If you take people's standard of living and you tank it through filth and crime and inflation and they literally can't buy the groceries they want, At that point, maybe it matters less what you say or whether you're a good person or a bad person. You're wrecking people's lives in their country, and that's what our leaders have done to us. John Stewart obviously made great fun of that, but he did offer this sort of thesis on why it might be that people like Tucker Carlson are so sympathetic to Putin. Let's just hear a bit of that. It's because the old civilizational battle was communism versus capitalism. That's what drove the world since World War II. Russia was the enemy then. But now they think the battle is woke versus unwoke. And in that fight, Putin is an ally to the right. He's their friend. Unfortunately, he is also a brutal and ruthless dictator. So now they have to make Americans a little more comfortable with that. 
what about that, Susan? I mean, obviously, it's partly a joke with you know with with the Daily Show and everything, but he seems to be putting his finger on something. That this isn't just about saluting Donald Trump and going wherever he leads, but rather there is some kind of ideological doctrine here. People have talked about national conservatism, associating it with Tucker Carlson, also the Senator J.D. Vance. Uh, it's a kind of different strain of conservatism. And in that, the, the position on Russia looks very different. Can you sort of explain that to us and, see, and say whether you think what John Stewart's identifying and others, there's something in it? I think you're right. I think Stewart is right. It predates Donald Trump the sort of America first or isolationism was a very pronounced, in fact, it was the dominant foreign policy view of American conservatives in the years leading up to World War II. And even at the beginning of World War II, uh, there were the isolationists in the U.S. Senate led by Robert Taft of Ohio, Charles Lindbergh, the famous flyer. They believed that, uh, you know, America had no business in the European war. And that actually was the dominant Republican Party view. There was also uh, a part of the Republican Party that goes back even farther, all the way really to the First World War, that had this sort of admiration for foreign dictators and strongman leaders of the type that we've seen from Donald Trump in recent years, where he you know, sucks up not only to Vladimir Putin, but also to Xi Jinping in China or Erdogan in Turkey. So that exists. And then there's also Putin's purposeful cultivation of uh, the Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump types. His rhetoric did take a, a sort of a hard right turn. He seemed to be appealing to conservative right-wing types outside of Russia as well with culture wars, with attacking LGBTQ rights, uh, for example, uh, with talking about Russia as a, a Christian nation. And uh, that has resonated uh, with American conservatives. People like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump seem to have fallen for it. Yeah, and the, um, the absolutely as you say, and you wrote this in your uh, latest dispatch for the New Yorker that this America First strain is not new, and in fact, the phrase was you know famous before the war as the name for the movement that wanted to keep the United States out of the war. And that's partly why when Donald Trump makes these remarks about NATO, they send a shiver down the collective spine of Europe. We should just talk about that a little bit. This remark he made in a speech essentially says, if you don't pay up, we're not going to protect you. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. And goes even further and actively encourages Vladimir Putin, almost inviting him to attack European nations, particularly perhaps the small ones that are on Russia's immediate frontier. What's driving that? Because that's going further than just saying, uh, America first, we don't want to get involved in these foreign wars, when he's actively you know, beckoning, encouraging Putin to invade. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, Donald Trump is not a man of, you know, great principle or ideology, but he does have some fixed ideas. And one of the most fixed of them is uh, a deep and abiding skepticism of any kind of long-term alliances, multilateral partnerships. He's just not 
interested in that. He believes consistently that whatever America's dealings are with uh, its foreign allies and partners, it's getting ripped off. Uh, he, he has viewed NATO as a sort of a protection racket from the very beginning. The notion at the heart of NATO and embedded in its Article 5 is basically this mutual defense pact. And there's an anecdote in our book where he's being explained what this is in the spring of 2017 when he first comes into the White House, because he was very ignorant. He really was not schooled or grounded in even the basics of American national security. And they tell him what Article 5 is. And he says, wait a minute. So you're telling me that if Lithuania is invaded, that I've got to go to war to protect Lithuania? You've got to be kidding me. No way. No way. And so I think those around Trump already knew what the world is sort of discovering to a tour, which is that he never had any commitment to Article 5 of NATO. But again, that, it doesn't sort of end there because this isn't just about when Donald Trump, if and when Donald Trump takes back the White House. This is playing out right now. And I'm thinking of the bill that Joe Biden has been desperate to get through Congress that would send foreign aid, including $60 billion to Ukraine. There's also money there for Israel and humanitarian aid for Palestinians and so on. This whole package has been, it did get passed through the Senate, although not with that many Republican votes. I mean, I think just 22 Republicans in the Senate voted for it, but not even going to get a hearing in the House. We are not going to be uh, forced into action by the Senate, who in the latest product they sent us over does not have one word in the bill about America's border. Not one word about security. The speaker there, Mike Johnson, sending everyone off for a winter vacation and sending, saying he won't bring the bill to the floor there for a vote. What's actually at stake here if Ukraine does not get that money? And perhaps it fold into your answer to what is really at stake here with the November election for Ukraine? Yeah, no, I think that the U.S. election is is pretty existential for Ukraine, uh, number one. Number two, as far as this aid package goes, Biden back in October uh, asked Congress for $60 billion additional dollars to support Ukraine, much though not all of it for military assistance. The aid that the U.S. had sent, which was very, very generous, has run out at the Pentagon. The Pentagon has announced that they have no more money to send. Uh, Ukrainian military officials and American officials have said that the flow of weapons has stopped or been greatly reduced as a result, that ammunition shortages are in fact already plaguing Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines in their conflict with Russia as a result directly of congressional inaction. That is the claim, obviously hard to directly verify, but certainly there are uh, widespread reports of Ukrainian units that are rationing their ammunition, that are not able to uh, fire at the same rate that they were before. The speaker, who literally owes his job to Donald Trump, has made it very clear he has not not much interest at all in bringing that to a vote on the floor. And so you have a situation where a minority, a significant minority, but still a minority of Congress, essentially is stopping the majority from voting on a measure that would pass and that is urgently needed for Ukraine. At an annual security conference in Munich, President Zelensky pleaded for more help from the U.S. and from allies around the world. Do not ask Ukraine 
when the war will end. Ask yourself, why is Putin still able to continue it? Susan, we do like to ask our guests on the podcast a what else question, something different. I'm afraid, again, Donald Trump is uh, central to this one. You and I spoke earlier of the case uh, in New York where a judge ruled that he, Donald Trump, has got to pay north of $350 million. And then when you add interest on it, could go to almost $100 million more than that for intentional financial fraud stretching over more than a decade. New York Attorney General Letitia James had accused the former president and his organization of overstating his net worth in order to win favorable terms on loans. In September, New York Supreme Court Judge Arthur Ngoron found Trump had committed fraud for more than a decade. He said he's going to appeal. Uh, His lawyer has said that he will pay the sort of bond you have to pay and that he does have the money to do that. And of course, that's been a central issue in this case. It really turns on how rich is Donald Trump. So that's our what else question. Does he have the cash for this? And how rich actually is he? (laughs) Well, it is a remarkable situation where he was actually put on trial in many ways for lying about how rich he was and, and, and filing false financial statements is actually at the core of that case in New York State that he was recently assessed this remarkably large fine as a result of. So actually, it's it's really ironic that lying about your finances uh, could get you in trouble and force you to be even in more financial trouble. He is raising money for the campaign, millions of dollars of which he's then been spending on his own legal defense. Right now, supporters of former President Donald Trump are rallying to raise money to help pay his mounting legal fees. In the wake of Friday's ruling in New York, a supporter launched the GoFundMe page with the goal of $355 million. That's how And this is obviously a remarkable and quite unprecedented situation in American politics. He's fighting this campaign not only for political power and to return to office, but quite literally uh, as a way of protecting himself legally from the various threats against him. And uh, his own personal survival in that sense is on the line. So does he have the money to pay up? We'll see. Uh, Donald Trump has uh, had to declare bankruptcy numerous times in the course of his long and very checkered business career. And, uh, you know, now the creditors are are closing in. Yeah, it would be pretty comic uh, if following a case that saw him insist that he was very, very wealthy, if he now said to the court, I can't afford the money you've demanded uh, I pay. That would have been a comic twist. Susan Glasser, thanks so much for talking to us on the podcast. I should mention, because you referred a couple of times to your book, the book is The Divider, Trump in the White House. 2017 to 2021, written by you, Susan Glasser, alongside Peter Baker. Thanks so much for coming on. Great to be with you. Thank you. And that's all from me for this week. Do make sure to listen back to Thursday's episode of Politics Weekly UK, as John Harris reports on what many have described as a shameful day in British politics because of MPs and even the Speaker of the House's handling of the Gaza ceasefire vote that sent the House of Commons into chaos. Search for that wherever you get your podcasts. And for anyone who is enjoying this podcast and has a spare moment, we would hugely appreciate it if you could leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. They do really help. 
But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer, Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.